Good morning. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians today, chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. In your black Bibles, that's page 966. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one of the black Bibles on the floor in front of you. Again, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 11 and ending in 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, and those, and th that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. And uh, again, I am, I'm really glad you're here. We uh, have been going through a series in the book of Acts. And we're not finished with Acts yet, but we're going to pause for the month of July. Because in three weeks, um, we will no longer be meeting in this building. Because in three weeks, we're going to be moving to our new location. Yeah. So that is good news. We are excited about it, and we can't wait to get over there. And so we thought it would be appropriate in these last couple messages here in this building, before we move to the new building, we wanted to pause and take one uh, more look, kind of a reminder to ourselves as a church of who we are and why we do what we do, because the temptation could become, and this is what we don't want to have happen. The temptation could become to be, um, become settled, to say we're, we, we've finally got this building and, and many of you have given very generously towards the building and the renovations for the building. Um, a lot of you have put in work towards those renovations and, and all of you, I believe, have been praying about it and we're excited about it and it creates a more permanent and lasting presence in this community. And so what could happen is we could get into the building and say like, here we are, we've arrived and we're set and we don't want that to happen because that is not the purpose of the church. And the church, and we've said this over and over and over and over again, but a church is not a building. And um, so often that's what we think in our minds. We think of church as either a building or an event and that's not what it is. A church is people, we are the church. And so we want to remember, even as we're excited and looking forward to being in the new building, that that building is not the church. We're the church. 
So what does that mean? So for the next couple of weeks, um, as we kind of close out our time in this space, which has served us very well, um, we want to reflect back on what it means to be a church so that as we move forward, we don't forget and we don't start to drift and we don't start to believe that that building is a church, but we remember that we are the church. And so today we're going to look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at kind of the very foundation of who we are as a church, as a people, as Christians. And what is it that we've been called to do? In order to set this up, I, I, I have to ask you a question, and I, this is kind of serious and maybe kind of heavy, but this is where we're going to start out today. And the question is this, what do you do when your hope is gone? Where do you go when it feels like everything is crumbling around you, when it feels like the bottom drops out, when everything that you've been trusting in or looking forward to, when it collapses, where do you go to find hope? Most of us go, all of us go somewhere because there's this thing in us somehow as humans that we refuse to just completely, most of the time, I guess I should say, we refuse to give up hope But sometimes the places we go for hope let us down. And we look to things to give us satisfaction or hope, or we put our trust into people or institutions or different political systems or or whatever it may be, our job, our career, our relationships, and those things fail us. And then what do you do? And the the thing is, and, and what I hope you know, as a believer in Christ, is that there is a place that hope is found. And my hope and my only source of hope, I have found, when I'm in my most difficult places, is to trust and to hope in Jesus Christ and in his death and his resurrection. And through his death and resurrection, that he's provided a path for me to have hope. Hope of a better future. Hope of a better present. But not everyone has that hope. So how do you declare hope to a hopeless world? We and I, you, every day interact with people who have no hope, who have no sense of anything ever getting better in their life. And and they live a life where what they are doing right now is the ultimate end And they believe that there's nothing beyond that. And we as Christians believe that there is much more beyond that. And our desire and our goal is to share that hope with others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about Christians in that way. And he uses an interesting analogy to describe us. By saying that we as Christians understand in, in some small way our place in in the greater story of what God's doing in the world, and that we have hope in that and in what Christ has done for us in the world, he gives us a title. And in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to us as ambassadors. Ambassadors for Christ. And so today, what I want us to see and what I want us to, to look at as a church together is that we 
as Christians individually, we as a church collectively, we are functioning as ambassadors for the hope of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What is an ambassador? Um, Kind of the dictionary definition of an ambassador is a diplomatic agent accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign, or appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. In other words, an ambassador is somebody who is sent by someone with authority to a different land, to a different country, to a different nation, with a job, with a message, to be a representative of someone else in a foreign place. Paul says we're ambassadors. We're ambassadors for Christ. We have a message and we've been sent by God into this world to deliver a message for him. Now, what does that mean and what does that look like? Here's my goal today. I want to go through this chapter, first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to unpack what it means for us to be ambassadors. Now, I understand as we go through this, this is a, a deep packed chapter. There's a lot of deep theological stuff going on here, and we don't have time to get into all of it today. I would encourage you to, to um, go home this week, read through this more on your own, dig into this deeper. I just want to focus specifically on this one question. What does it mean and what does it look like? What are the implications for us to be ambassadors for Christ in this world? When Paul says we're ambassadors, what does that mean? So let's walk through Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to pull out four, what I believe are four separate implications of what it means to be an ambassador for Christ. My hope is that that will encourage you and that it will give you in your mind as you walk out of here today an idea of yourself maybe in a different light. That maybe you see yourself in a different way. That maybe you begin to comprehend this idea that that God has given you a mission and he has set you in this world for a very specific purpose. And what does that mean? And so here are four implications of what it would mean to be an ambassador. I actually want to back all the way up to verse one because the first implication that I see from this chapter is that as ambassadors, thinking through what it means to be an ambassador, this world is not our home. Because an ambassador is somebody who comes from a different land and is sent into a new country to deliver a message. This world is not our home. Look in chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. When Paul is talking here, he's using a tent as an analogy, or he's using an analogy of a tent to describe our bodies. And what he's saying here is that we view our bodies as permanent, as our home. This is who we are. This is where we are. But he's saying we have to understand this is temporary. You, your, your physical human body is not eternal. You know that. You know at some point you are going to die. But Paul says that there's more beyond that. There is actually an eternal body that you will put on 
and it's different and it will last forever. For in this tent, verse two, in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In other words, Paul is saying, you know that there's something in you that says there's more to life than just this life. And that it's inevitable that in this life, you're going to be unsettled and unsatisfied because you know that there's more to life. And so those feelings of uneasiness, that restlessness you have, that you seek to fulfill in different ways, that's not necessarily a bad thing. What that is, is that your spirit within you, the, the, the immortal thing within you, is longing to get out of this temporary body that you're in. Because you understand that there's something greater beyond. He who has, verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Again, it's not bad to feel restless. It's not bad to feel unsatisfied. You know how you're always like, well, if I just get to here, then things will be better. If I can just get to this stage of life, then things will be better. Once we get beyond this, once we get, once once I'm out of college, things will be better. I'll be settled. Once I have a career, I'll be settled. Once I change careers, I'll be settled, right? Once I get married or once we have kids or once we buy a house, once we get settled, then things will be good and I'll be content. But it never happens. It never works. We're always wanting something more. And Paul says here, that's okay. Not, listen, listen, listen. Let me make sure I'm clear on this. Not seeking to find fulfillment in those things, but feeling a sense of restlessness is okay because it was put there by God. He's preparing us for something greater. This present world that we live in right now is not our permanent home. Verse six, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We believe that there's more to this life than just this life. And all of us know this, and, and we, Paul uses the word, and I love it, we groan inside of ourselves for something more, and we seek to find satisfaction and fulfillment here, but we never will. Why? Because we are still separated from God. And until we reach an eternal state of being united with him, we will have dissatisfaction. But here's why this is really important for us to remember. As ambassadors for Christ, we need to remember this world is not everything. It's not ever going to be our true home. We will not find our satisfaction here. And so 
as much as we hope for something more, when we, especially we as Christians, seek to find fulfillment through the material things of this world, we will not be satisfied. And yet, for some reason, I, and probably you, keep, keep trying. Just keep going back. Keep thinking, well, but if I just get this, if I can just do this, if I can just get this settled, it's not going to work. And we have to keep that clear. This world is never going to fulfill us. No material things, no human relationships, no degree of personal success or financial gain. None of that is ever going to bring us the satisfaction we're looking for. Now, look, I'm not saying those are bad things. I mean, those, are, those can be good things. Relationships can be extremely rewarding. God works through our relationships to give us glimpses of himself. He created material things for us to enjoy. Those are good things, but they are not ultimate things. And we as Christians must always remember that there is more beyond this life. In fact, we'll enjoy the temporary material things more if we understand that they are not the eternal things. If we don't put all the weight of our own personal enjoyment and satisfaction upon those material things, we'll enjoy them much, much more as things given to us and created by God so that we can turn our attention and our worship to him instead of the things he created. So as ambassadors, we have to remember, we are not here to find our own personal satisfaction here. If we're not, then why are we here? Well, for the reason an ambassador goes to another place, we're here to deliver a message. In fact, you could almost argue, and I want to be careful the way I say this, but it almost sounds in chapter, uh, in verses six through eight, as if Paul is saying it, it would be better to not be alive. Is Paul advocating here suicide? No, not at all. Because he understands that there is a purpose and a reason for us to be here. As much as we may not find satisfaction in this world, we still have hope in this world, and we still have a purpose in this world. We're here to deliver a message. Because we're here to deliver a message and because this world is not our home, then that leads us to a second implication. And the second implication of being an ambassador is this. We are not accountable to the people around us. We're accountable to the one who sent us. When an ambassador goes on a mission from one country to another, that ambassador's loyalty is to their home country. And so they are accountable to deliver the message that they were sent to deliver, and they are accountable to the one who sent them. Ultimately, if you go as a diplomat to another country, you will have to answer back to the country, to the leader of the country who sent you. And that's true for us as well. We are accountable, not to humans, not to the people around us. We are accountable to the God who sent us. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of of the Lord, we persuade others. When we use the term the fear of the Lord, and the Bible uses this phrase a lot, the fear of the Lord, we have to understand that um, it is talking about fear in the sense of 
God is a great and mighty and powerful God. And he is a God of justice. And we all must be held accountable for what we've done. That's what he's saying in verse 10. Each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And God is powerful and just and righteous to judge us for what we've done. And that should in some ways fill us with a kind of a fear. Now that fear also represents itself in respect, in awe, in a sense that we need to follow God. However, we know, you know, I know, that we all fall very far short of the standard of what God's called us to do. None of us, none of us is able to do everything God's called us to do. It just, it's not going to happen. You can't even, and I can't even live up to the standards I set for myself, right? Like you have an idea of how you should behave and you can't even do that, let alone the standards God sets for you. And so what do you do about that? Well, as we will see as we go on, our only hope is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and through his death on our behalf. And knowing that, Paul says, knowing the fear with a respect and an awe for what God is perfectly, and I do mean perfectly, justified in doing. The judgment that we all truly deserve, knowing that and fearing that, we persuade others. Because we believe that God is perfectly justified in judging sin, in any way that he deems righteous, knowing that and fearing that, we do everything we can to persuade others to trust in Christ for salvation. But what we are, he says, Paul says, what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Here, here you have to understand a little bit of context here. When Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. Part of the, the motivation for him writing in this letter, we see as we read through the letter itself, is that there were people in Corinth. Paul had founded this church, but then he had left. And there were people in Corinth who were saying negative things about Paul and about his associates. And Paul didn't write this to defend himself because what he's saying here is, honestly, he could care less what they think of him, but he wanted to make sure that the the believers in Corinth understood that the message he delivered, that the message of the gospel was true, that whatever people chose to say about Paul, whatever people chose to say about his motivations, that the message he delivered was true. And what he says here is, I don't care what other people say about me as long as God knows what's in my heart. And this is something that we need as believers to keep clear. And I personally struggle so 
hard with this. My goal, I'm sent by God to deliver a message. My accountability is to him. Whose opinion of me truly, honestly matters? His and his alone. But it's really hard. And again, if we use our our analogy of an ambassador, if I'm in a different country and I'm surrounded by a bunch of people that I can see, it's really hard for me to remember that I'm actually accountable to someone who's somewhere else that I can't physically, visually see. And in my life, it's so much easier for me to be focused on the opinions of the people around me and to care much more about what they think than to remember that my accountability is to God. Now, in saying that, does that mean that I should just be like, a misanthrope, I'm just a jerk because I don't care because I'm accountable to God. Only God can judge me. So, you know, whatever. I don't care about you. No, look at what he says in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. Paul is saying, look, I'm here or we came here. or We went to Corinth to share the gospel for your sake. Look, we care about people. We care about the people who need to hear the message that God sent us to deliver. But ultimately, our accountability is to God. And that's really important because the third implication that I think we need to see from this, we're accountable to God. And so because of that, we need to deliver God's message, not our own message. Because if I get focused on people. And if my goal in life is to please other people, to be thought of well by other people, then it's going to be really easy for me to change the message I'm supposed to be delivering. Because the message God sends us to deliver is not an easy message to hear. It is a good message. It is good news. It it is a message of hope, but it's not a message that connects easily with our modern sensibilities, with the way our culture works, with the way we as, as, not just as Westerners, not just as Americans, but we as humans believe that the world should work in a certain way and that things should work in a certain way. And the message that God sends us to deliver goes kind of right in the face of what we want to believe about ourselves. Because we want to believe about ourselves that we're basically good people who have messed up and so we can fix what we've messed up. And if we just work a little harder, if we could just change our circumstances a little bit, if we could just surround ourselves with different people or find ourselves in a different situation, then we could improve our situation. And that our lives would get better if I just try a little harder, if I just dedicate myself a little more, if I just get more organized. The message God sends us to deliver says that that's not true. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does this mean? It means this, all have died. We are all dead 
on the inside. Paul would write to another church in Ephesus that we are all dead in our sins. That human beings, from the moment they're born, are carrying around a dead soul. And that as much as we want to make ourselves better, you can't make yourself better if you're dead. A corpse can't make itself come to life. And a better dead person is still a dead person. And on our own, we have no ability and no power to fix what is wrong with us. But one died for all, that one being Jesus Christ. And he took our sin and he took our death on himself that we might have life. From now on, therefore, verse 16, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ doesn't just offer us through his death a better life. He doesn't offer improvement on who we are. He offers us a completely new He brings us to life. He creates a new creation. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you are brought to life in a new way that you have never known before. This is more than just trying to make yourself better. And this is hope and this is good, good news because it's more than you could ever hope for on your own. The best you can hope for is to be as good as you can possibly be, which you've already found out is not that great. But what God offers to us through Christ is to be something completely and entirely new. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God worked through Christ, through his death and his resurrection, to take the punishment, the wrath, the judgment that we said we deserve, that God is perfectly justified to give to us. Christ took that on himself so that we could be reconciled to God. Because God is holy and perfect and we are sinful and we could never on our own bridge the gap between a holy God and us sinful human beings. So through Christ, we are counted as being holy. That Christ's righteousness is given to us and he takes our sin on himself. This is the message that God has given us to declare. And it says in verse 19, he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. What an awesome and amazing message responsibility, to be entrusted with that 
message, the greatest message that any human being could ever hear. The one and only hope for satisfaction, for peace, for a reconciliation with a holy God. The only hope of that is in Christ. And God has chosen to entrust that message to us. Now we have to think here, and this one's not on the screen, but kind of the sub-implication of this implication. If God's entrusted that message to us, we have to tell people about it. It's not enough to know these things are true and to keep them to ourselves. God didn't entrust this message to us the way that you would give something to someone that you want them to go put in a safety deposit box, lock it away, and keep it safe. God gave us this message so that we would share it. That as we will see, that reconciliation comes through trusting in Christ. We must explain to people the gospel. It is not enough to be kind. It is not enough to be moral. It is not enough to be friendly. It's not enough to work for social justice. The message that God has entrusted to us is one of reconciliation to himself through Christ. We must proclaim that. We must tell people the message that God has given us. Which leads us to the final implication. Our goal as ambassadors, is to persuade. But it is not to coerce, and I will explain what I mean by that. But look at verse 20. Therefore, because of everything we just said about what should happen to us and about the fear we should have of God based on that and about what God has done to reconcile us to himself, therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We implore you. Implore means to to beg earnestly, to beg people. Paul is begging his listeners, be reconciled to Christ, to God. Now, this is an interesting choice of language. And so we have to to look at this a little bit closely here, because what did he just say in verse 18? All this is from God who through, through Christ reconciled us to himself. God did this by sending Christ to die for our sins He is the one who saves us. It's through nothing we can do on our own. And again, we've said there's no human way to merit peace with God. It's all from God. He is completely sovereign. He's completely in control. He's completely the one who saves. And yet, and yet, Paul says, we implore you be reconciled to God. Because even though God is the one who saves us, he saves us by his grace through 
faith, through our trust, we must respond. And in order to respond, we must hear the message and we must understand that we must trust in Christ. Now again, and I know I'm being real picky about the language here, but please understand and please notice in verse 20, he says, be reconciled to God, not reconcile yourself to God. This is the message. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough, to be good enough, to save yourself, to make peace with God on your own. But the one thing that you must do, Jesus said it this way, the work you must do is to believe. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our goal is to share that message, to persuade people, to implore people, to beg people to believe, to trust in what Christ did for them. But at the end of the day, we deliver the message, the results are up to God. We don't coerce. We don't manipulate. We don't try to force people to trust in God because you can't. You can't manipulate. You can't force a change of heart. And if trusting in God means in your heart and in your mind fully leaning on him for your salvation. You can't force someone to do that. So our goal is to, with everything in us, beg people to trust in Christ. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that they will make their own choices. This is where, and, and as I say all of this, This morning, I want to be real clear. My goal is not to make you feel guilty. This is where I think guilt enters in. When I start trying to keep track, I start trying to, to hold statistics of how many people have trusted in Christ because I shared the gospel. How many people, there's different ways to to phrase it. How many people I've led to the Lord? How many people I've convinced to pray a prayer? Or how many people... This would be an awful way to say it, but I've heard it phrased this way. How many people I've saved? I can't save anybody. Um, But when I start feeling like it's totally and completely my responsibility for other people to trust in Christ, I, I start to feel guilty. My goal this morning is not for you to feel guilty. My goal for you is to be inspired, to understand that you have a, a, a mission an awesome mission, and it is a responsibility. You've been entrusted with a message, an incredible message, the message of reconciliation to God. But that if you faithfully declare that message, then what happens when you declare that message is not on you. It's not your fault if people don't believe or don't trust in Christ. It's not on you. It is, however... entrusted to you by God to share the message. But not because of guilt, but rather, and I skipped over this, but I want to go back to verse 14. 
the thing that motivates us. It's not a sense of guilt. Verse 14 says, for the love of Christ controls us. We share the gospel because it's been entrusted to us by God. But we share the gospel because of his love for us. Because we understand that the message of reconciliation, that that the message that no one comes to God on their own is just as true about us as it is for anyone else. That apart from God's love, I would still be dead. That I did nothing to earn my salvation. Nothing whatsoever to make God love me. It is the love of Christ that reconciled me to God and it's that love from Christ that controls me. You know what it means to be controlled by love? To be so in love with someone or something that it impacts the way you live, that it changes your behavior? That's what we're talking about here. Not following God and doing what he asks us to do because of that fear. Look, the fear we talked about, that's covered and taken only, that, 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 that fear of judgment is taken care of only through Christ's death on our behalf. Nothing we can do. So we don't obey God out of fear. We obey God because we love him. We don't obey God because we think we're going to earn some kind of special blessings in our life. We obey God because he loves us. And his love for us is so great that Jesus Christ would die a painful and tortured death to take the punishment that we deserve. And that love is so great that it should motivate everything we do. And it should spur us on to love others because when we look at anyone else in the world, we understand that we are no better than them. And that they, or that we are just as undeserving of God's love as they are. And so they should get to hear the message just as much as we got to hear the message. So we seek to persuade because we are loved by God. Sometimes I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid that many of us, and I include myself in this, we, we take this love for granted. This was a radical, unimaginable love. To become a human being, to come down from a position of, of perfection and glory and to become a mortal human being and to be tortured and to be killed out of love for you and for me. And to do that, not because we're great or because of anything we've done for him, but purely and totally because of everything we've done wrong. God died died for us. That is an amazing and miraculous kind of love. That is not something 
to ignore. And it's not something to keep to ourselves. So we've been sent as ambassadors. Trailhead Church as a whole collectively and each of us individually is an ambassador for Christ. In a world that is not our home, it is not permanent. We will not be here forever. Accountable to the one who sent us, who knows what's truly in our hearts, even when other people misunderstand us. We've been sent to deliver his message, his message of reconciliation and hope to a hopeless world. To do everything we can to beg, to persuade, but then to trust him with the results. We're going to put some questions on the screen to reflect on. If you have questions, I mean specifically, especially, if I'm talking this morning and you're thinking, I don't have that kind of hope, we would love to have a conversation with you about what that looks like. You should have received in your bulletin a a response card. If you have questions, if you'd like us to pray about something with you as leaders, um, we would love to hear what it is that's on your heart. If you would fill those cards out, you can drop them in the boxes up here on the communion table or on the baskets on your way out this morning. We have been entrusted with a great responsibility. And we're motivated by God's love to share his gospel with the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. And on our own, we know that that there's nothing within us that merits your favor or your goodness. And yet you have loved us so much that you would send Jesus Christ to die for us. And then, Beyond that, that you would entrust us with that message. You didn't have to do that. You could have shared the gospel with the world in any way you chose, and you chose us. I'm humbled by that, because all I see when I look at myself is every wrong thing about me. And you've chosen for a reason that only you can understand, to share your message through me. So thank you. But God, I pray this morning that all of us will will feel the responsibility of that, but that we will be motivated by love, not by guilt, not by fear, but by love for our friends, for our neighbors, for our relatives, to share with them a hope, a hope that is beyond human understanding. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.